This is Recovery Revolution Live. The episode you're about to listen to is live and unedited. If you'd like to join us on the live stream, you can find us on Facebook and YouTube. Facebook.com slash Recovery Revolution 100 or search Recovery Revolution Live on YouTube. Starting in February, we will be doing our live broadcast on Thursday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central. Hope to see you there. All right, and welcome to today's show on Recovery Revolution Live. My name is Carl, the co-host along with the wonderful Brett Morris. And I want to welcome everybody to our show today. We have a wonderful show lined up for you, and I hope that you enjoy my new camera view. We're trying out a new webcam today, so (laughs) hopefully that's going to look nice for you guys. You get a side angle of me, and I am so happy to be back, back from recovering from the coronavirus, and it feels really good to be back on the mic today. So I'm glad that we are here to help you guys enjoy recovery, and our guest today is Kevin. Kevin is a person in long-term recovery, and Kevin is also a person who has been sober since 1986. Kevin took his last couple of sips of alcohol New Year's Eve and made a promise to himself to stay sober. And Kevin's journey is that of struggle, sobriety, spirituality, and what a wonderful guest we have today. So we want to welcome Kevin to the show. Kevin, welcome to the Recovery Revolution Live broadcast. Thanks, brothers. All right. Hope that wasn't overwhelming. <laughs> hard, to fo- hard, hard act to follow, buddy. It, it hard is. act to it follow. Is. Okay. And we want to thank everybody for listening tonight and good night. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Kevin, man, welcome to the show, brother. Um, Brett sent over uh, the episode that you and he did um, about two years ago. Is that right, Brett? Yeah, almost it's been two almost. Years yeah. Ago. Yeah. And, and so, for anybody that would like to. Uh, view that episode and listen to it. It's on Brett's uh, Recovery Survey podcast. It's episode 33. And um, that is a fantastic episode. And I I definitely uh, took a listen to that episode uh, before we went on the air today. And I was so happy to hear your story because, Kevin, you don't know it, but you and I have a lot of similarities in our story, Um, you know, growing up and things like that. So we're going to dive into some of those similarities. And I want to talk about your journey and everything. Um, But let me ask you this first, Kevin, how are you doing today, brother? You look so relaxed over there, man. You know, you asked me that. Thanks, man. Thanks very much. And hey, everybody. Uh, Yeah, it is. It has been one of those um, has been one of those really good days. It's funny. You talk about the spirituality piece. We were chatting before we got going here. Um, you don't want to know 90% of what we were talking about. Anybody who's listening, but 10% of it was about, you know, spiritual, spiritual stuff, but you know, things get struggly, you know, I struggle like all of us do in, in, in recovery. And yet this morning I was doing my prayer and meditation. And as I started to pray, you know, a lot of my prayers for a long time and for recently have been, you know, please God help me out. You know, I need some help on this, that, and the other. And the first thing out of my mouth, I just took a deep breath and actually was able to feel myself sigh. And I, all I said was, thank you. Mm. <laughs> just thank you. Like for the first time, I felt like, you know, my shoulders could relax a little bit. So when you ask me how I'm doing today, thank you. 
really good, really good. Centered, feeling good. I guess because I knew I was coming here tonight. I've been prepping mm-hmm. for this, you know. Yeah. Um, but seriously, it's it's just been a wonderful, uh, a wonderful day. Real, real centered day. Uh, and interest, interestingly enough, I was thinking about it before I got on here. Uh, a couple of things I did today. I went to a meeting today, and without even thinking about it, I got a call from one of the fellows I sponsor unbeknownst to me, he was struggling with something and we chatted, he might be here today. And right after that, you know, I, I got a, I had another guy that was, uh, that was struggling with something and just being of service. I think it just put me in a place of being ready, you know, for this, for this tonight, but I'm doing great, man. Thanks for asking. Oh yeah, man. You're so welcome. And Brett, good to see you, brother. I, I wasn't on the show last week. I listened to it though. You guys did a great job. Um, thank you, Ashley. Uh, she took some time out of doing school to help fill in for me. Um, but always good to talk to you, Brett and I talk, I mean, shoot, I think I talk to you probably at least every other day on the phone. I just like harassing you while you're trying to find the culinary department at a local (laughs) high school. (laughs) Yeah, man. Glad to be here tonight. And, uh, sorry that Ashley couldn't make it like, like, uh, Carl said, she's got school tonight, but you know, coming up here at the end of, of the month, we're going to be switching over to Thursday nights. Yes. So that works better for everybody's schedule. Ashley will be a regular co-host on the show. Mm-hmm. It works well for Carl. Thursday works well for me. So mark your yeah. calendars. We're going to be moving to Thursdays. Um, yeah. yeah and that's, excited to have the three of us together. Yeah. And Brett, that's coming up next week. So next week, you guys need to be ready because we are doing two shows next week. We're doing our show on Monday and we have a guest booked for Thursday next week. So buckle up. It's going to be a wild ride next week and plenty of Recovery Revolution live. But Brett, let's jump in today's episode. So you and Kevin met about a year and a half to two years ago, and uh, he was on your 33rd episode of the Recovery Survey Podcast. So so tell us a little bit about how, how you pulled him into your show and, and how your relationship has been with him since. Wow. I, I'm not even, I was, I was thinking about it on my drive home from work today and I'm not sure how we first connected. I'm Twitter. sure it was either, I was going to say it was either Twitter or it was yeah. some kind of social media. Yeah. We connected on Twitter and then um, we've stayed in contact since then. I mean, it's been about a year and a half mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Kevin and I talked on the phone. What was that about a week and a half ago? Yeah. Two weeks ago. Yep. You know, we were on the phone for at least a good 30, 45 minutes, just talking recovery, talking about what was going on in our lives, kind of catching each other up on what, what's, uh, what's been happening since we talked last. And, you know, I, I consider Kevin a good friend and somebody that I can call if I need some advice. Cause he's been in the program longer than I have. And, and I think he has a little bit more wisdom than I do in most areas. So, uh, you know, grateful to call him a friend and be, be able to have that person as, as somebody in my circle that I can call if I need to. Yeah. Absolutely, man. And, um, you know, and that, that rolls into, um, a topic I want to bring up to Kevin at some point during the interview today, which is your spiritual findings and also your higher power. Cause, um, Kevin made mention of that in your 33rd episode. And, uh, I think he and I have some similarities along with the higher power part and also, um, finding other people in recovery, um, that we can rely on and talk to and stuff like that. So, Really good, but uh, Kevin, why don't you why don't you tell us? So, for the people that are unfamiliar with you, because um, not everybody has um, listened to that episode, and uh, you know, not everybody is going to know you straight off the bat. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and um, how it was that you came into recovery, and and anything you would like to share about that? 
Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, stop me if I get too long in the tooth there, because I definitely love to chat about this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As as Brett will remember. Um, and yeah, it has been over like a year and a half since we first connected. And, you know, what's fun about being number 33 is and I'm, I'm in the first 100. You know, I've been on a lot of podcasts and, you know, maybe I'm lucky enough to be like episode 140 or episode 800 or something like that, you know. But being in the first 100 is is pretty. I'm pretty proud. And recently, Brett reached out to me and said, "You know, we we do a little blurb because we're doing a little anniversary thing. I think right, and uh, and just felt really good to th- kind of remember where we were. So that's that's what I can talk about. You know, it's like like we talk about you know uh, in in the rooms and talk about it in recovery. You know, what it was like, um, what happened, and what it's like now, kind of deal. So for me, yeah, I was. Born in a little town called Rotterdam, Schenectady, New York, and raised in a town called Rotterdam. Uh, but I was adopted. My biological mother uh, was not able to take care of me. And I was in foster care for a bit of time and then was adopted by a lovely couple. And things could have gone really well. And they didn't uh, quite go as well as I think my my biological mother would have liked or my adoptive family or me. Uh, by the time I was nine, some things started to go off the rails. Um, again, my parents were lovely people. Uh, they didn't know what had happened, but I was um, I was sexually abused as a child um, by a 4-H leader when I was nine years old. Uh, and that really, I think, was more of a turning point than I knew at the time. I didn't even realize until I was in sobriety for a couple of years that that had been abuse. Um, but I knew something wasn't quite right about that. But it changed me and it rewired me and it um, it really turned me in a direction that um, I don't think I would have gone otherwise. So uh, a pedophile, someone who is abusive to children can really do a number on us. And I think that's when my wiring, uh, as they say, got a little bit off kilter. Uh, I do think that the adoption also and the abandonment, the early um, adoption uh, and that separation from my biological family also was a rewiring. But the real uh, essence of this story that we're talking about today happened when I was 11 years old and I had my first drink and it was a six pack of Schlitz. You know, you mentioned uh, that my last couple of sips, uh, which were two shots, I don't do sips, but a uh, couple of shots on January 1, 1986, those were my last two drinks. And those were, you know, a fine whiskey from Italy, you know, and these nice shot glasses. But my first drink was 11 years old, sitting on the railroad tracks, with a six pack of piss warm Schlitz. And when I finished drinking that, um, that six pack, uh, you know, I stumbled home, woke up the next morning. And, I, and it's one of those weird things that you just say, do I really remember this? But I do. I knew exactly what I wanted to do the rest of my life. I just said, well, now I know what to do. This is what I do. This is how I, this is how I want to feel. Uh, and this is where I want to, uh, this is the trajectory I want to be on. And things like a lot of us, uh, that set the pace for for a lot of things to happen that uh, in a lot of ways we would not have wanted uh, to go down that road. It affected me, of course, terribly. It affected uh, the disease of addiction and alcoholism, just affected my whole family, uh, really broke us in two. Um, and it was just me and my uh, my parents. I didn't have any other siblings. Uh, no one, No one else was adopted. My parents couldn't have any uh, biological children. Um, but by the time I was 12, I was, I was ODing. By the time I was 13, I was in the back of a police car. By the time I was 14, I was taken out of that 
adoptive home and put in foster care. Again, uh, that first foster home turned into a pretty much of a nightmare. Uh, they were both alcoholics. I ran away from there, was put in another foster home. Uh, then from there, went to a group home, detention center. And then eventually, after a year of a lot of that turmoil, was um, released back to my adoptive family. But by the time I got back there, things were so off the rails. Uh, it was like, I, I think I, I wrote about it, and it's, it was like going back to a country where you don't remember the language. And so I came back to my family and didn't really know how to, how to exist there anymore. Uh, and the drugs and the alcohol had just taken me for uh, such a ride at that point. Um, and I spent most of the time, instead of with my family, I spent most of the time um, on the streets and especially in downtown Schenectady, which is where I was raised, uh, that, that, that county. Uh, and when I was 15, another uh, pretty significant moment in my life, I was raped uh, by two men. I was gang raped. Uh, and that was during a time when I was um, uh, really sick on the streets. I had gone to their uh, to the apartment to to get uh, some uh, some some drugs. Uh, I won't go into all the details here, but they were opiates. And the uh, the real the real key to that is that um, I didn't really care that I was being raped. I just wanted more drugs. And I came back to that relationship or that house and, and those people uh, for, for, for a while, for a couple of months, because that's what was, uh, was pulling me in. But the rest of my story is, is fairly typical. And I think all of this is really typical of uh, the life we live. Uh, I, was, um, I dropped out of high school when I was in 10th grade. My oldest daughter was born when I was 16. My youngest was born when I was 17 years old. Uh, I joined the Navy when I was 18, got married. Um, and my wife left me by the time I was 20. I got thrown out of the Navy, ended up in the back of a lot of police cars, ended up in jail, had seven felonies, um, lost my license, had a lot, of, a lot of other trouble with the law, DWI that I, I didn't ever remember until I was many years into sobriety. And by the time I was 21, uh, things were really sick. Things got very off the rails. Uh, I ended up on the streets again. I ended up prostituting myself as a male prostitute here in Schenectady. And by the time I was 22 and 23, uh, my addiction had taken over full blown. Um, and when the end of that part of my journey uh, kind of came to fruition, so to speak, uh, I couldn't spell my last name. I was very mentally ill. I was really sick physically. There was a lot of a lot of um, bodily functions that weren't working, and a lot of a lot of um, bodily fluids, blood, and uh, uh, feces and urine that was uh, crowding my my bed and my existence and my life. Uh, but when I finally did quit, and it's one of those things that I like to say, it wasn't because I made a New Year's resolution because I thought I had a problem with drugs and alcohol. What I did was on New Year's Eve, I had made a decision coming up to that, that I was really tired of not being able to pay my bills. Um, I was stealing. My, my girlfriend was uh, giving me a lot of money and paying my bills, and I still couldn't keep up with the usage. Uh, and I decided to quit drugs and alcohol for one year. My reasoning was this, I'm going to quit drugs and alcohol for one year so I can save enough money so I can buy enough drugs so I can deal drugs and never have to buy them again. So I was, uh, I came up with this entrepreneur idea. Uh, I didn't know there was a word like entrepreneur and I couldn't have spelled it if you asked me to, but with the brain that I had at that point, that was the best I could do. And so I made a commitment on New Year's Eve to stop. And I remember at New Year's Eve, you know, saying, that's it, I'm not going to do anymore. And my girlfriend at the time ran in the other room, said, wait, 
I said, what? She came running back out and she said, I forgot to give you this present. And she came out with a bottle. It was a beautiful bottle, um, a flask um, that she had gotten from Italy with whiskey. And it had a leather clad and it had four shot glasses on it. And she, she said, this was your present I forgot to give you. And there I was, just made a New Year's resolution. She popped the bottle, got a shot glass. She poured two shots. I drank them. Those are the last two drinks I ever had. That brings you up to that speed right now. I don't know if you want me to go into the recovery portion or if you just want me to pause at this point. Wow. Um, yeah. Well, you know, that's uh, that's all really incredible, man. Uh, the, uh, the whole foster care thing um i i can i can relate to that i i was adopted at, at a year and a half and um you said that you grew up in a household that was that was a, a positive household uh that didn't have any addiction issues is that correct yeah my mom my mom and dad they drank but they were not addicted they had other mental health issues and 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 physical health issues pretty severe my dad had very severe physical health issues but they were not abusive towards me no Okay. Yeah. And, you know, and I can totally relate to that too. Um, you know, my positive, my, my household that I grew up in was positive and, um, you know, went into the military, was in the military for, um, just under a year and, um, also discharged out of the military. Um, and then kind of like just dove into drugs afterwards. So, um, definitely I, I can relate to a lot of that story and, um, you know, uh, that's, that's really incredible. And I'm so happy that you are here today and that you're telling us the story and that you're telling us about the struggles and, um, you know, and all the things that you had that had happened to you. And, um, you know, and I, I think that it really helps solidify the idea that even when all of this happens to us, we can come out of this and we can recover from it, you know, and we can recover from a, a alcohol and drug addiction and, um, you know, in uh, prostitution even. Uh, do you feel that that prostitution part was even an addiction for you up at all? Or was that just something that you were doing to survive? Yeah, I think uh, at that point it was really the Neanderthal brain really there wasn't much there wasn't much frontal cortex happening at that point when the drugs and alcohol had taken their toll on me as they did on you and yeah. Brett and every, probably most everyone who might be listening to this um, there's not a lot of thinking that goes into that but I do think that those were uh, those were the things that because of the abuse especially the sexual abuse that had happened to me as a child combined with the understanding I think in many ways, uh, being adopted, being abandoned, feeling like there was a different sense of worth to me in my life. Uh, by the time I ended up on the streets, that was actually natural. By the time I ended up prostituting myself in the way that I did, which was very degrading. Uh, I mean, it was really the, the bottom of the bottom. There wasn't anything, there wasn't a pretty woman kind of theme to this. You know what I mean? It wasn't, wasn't really uh, magical or mystical. It was really bottoming out. Uh, but I felt like that's what I deserved. I don't think that I could answer the question if it was an addictive, a sexual addictive behavior. I certainly know that I have looked at sexual addiction as part of my struggle, especially in early sobriety, because even when I got sober, I didn't know how to have a relationship with anyone if it wasn't sexual. And if you wanted me, you got me. 
If you needed me, I didn't even think twice about it. And in sobriety, that just about led me back to the bottle. But even worse, it just almost led me to suicide. I just felt like, what what kind of a life am I having right now in sobriety if I can't be the kind of guy that, you know, that I that I that I know I am inside, that I know that I'm I'm not this broken piece of meat. Pardon the expression, but you know, I'm not this broken down piece of meat that anyone can just abuse and use anymore. And yet I didn't know how to stop that. So I think a lot of what I had in uh, those last days of prostitution and of living on the streets and the way I behaved and the way I, I subjected myself to the, you know, the worst of the world around me, I think that took a real toll on me. And whether it was an addiction, it was a part of my addiction. Whether it was, you know, a pattern that had developed over the years, uh, I certainly think it was, and I can narrow it down. It almost, I'm not going to say it doesn't matter to me to understand why it happened, but it certainly was something that I had to look at and say, how do I progress from here? How do, we, how do I become the man I want to be? And of course, there's some, there's some patterns that, you know, I needed to put in place that were new patterns. Yeah, absolutely. And, and those patterns are so important for us too. And, and I think that it, it really takes a while for some of those patterns to develop for us because, you know, we're, we're so used to doing things a certain way when we're in our addiction. And we're so used to having things a certain way in our addiction that the idea that the world doesn't revolve around us anymore is very foreign and it feels very odd. Well, at least it did for me. Um, but you know, a lot of the clients that I get to work with in, in my profession have even described it as, um, you know, this idea that we have to, uh, start to, you know, involve ourselves in other people's lives and not everything has to revolve around us in order for us to feel full and complete and have that, um, you know, what some people call serenity, right? Um, so Kevin, let's, let's talk a little bit about serenity, man, and surrender. What is, what do those two words mean to you when you think about, about both of those? When you start me out on the word serenity, it, it's, it's like the word balance to me. Sometimes it's like trying to grab a cloud, you know, trying to find balance in my life, trying to find serenity. It's like, I got it. Where'd it go? Um, and I think that has to do with the other word, which you mentioned, which is surrender, which is I can't find serenity. I, I can receive serenity. Yeah. I can't make this happen in my life. I mean, no matter how many meetings I go to, no matter how many uh, therapy sessions I have, no matter how many good meals I eat and how many times I go to the gym, there's going to be moments where I'm just going to go, why is my thinking so off kilter? Why does my heart feel like it's pounding out of the chest? Why do I feel like I, why do I feel like in the moment, and this is one of the biggest ones, when I'm in a, in a place of serenity, not only can I receive other people. Not only can I receive other people, but I feel like I can open to other people. Yeah. And when I'm not in a place of serenity, I don't feel like I want to be with other people. And I don't feel like anyone wants me to be with them. So mm -hmm. for instance, if I'm in a real unserene place, I'm not going to call Brett. And yeah. if he calls me, I might let it go to voicemail. And it's not because mm -hmm. I don't want to talk to him. It's because I don't feel in a place that's centered. Mm -hmm. But when I surrender to that, when I surrender to my inability to actually manufacture serenity. When I surrender to that, I recognize where serenity comes from. And it's of course, from some of these spiritual practices that we have. And in my word, in my words, it would be um, that it's a gift that I, I get from my higher power. Serenity is not something that I own. 
It's not something that I can capture. It's not something I can put on the shelf and just kind of show it to you. Yeah. Uh, but I can tell you, I can tell you where it's where it's manifest in my life, and it's manifested through a relationship with a power greater than myself. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and, and um, talking about that, uh, Kevin, it, it really was um, interesting when you had mentioned in the uh, interview you did with Brett that you know the first three steps for you were the eye-opening three steps to prepare you for step four. And then step five was even, um, it. what it sounded like was step five was even more in depth than step four, as crazy as that kind of sounds. Um, mm-hmm. But also the fact that you had heard from somebody that you need to get a sponsor and you turned around and asked the first guy that you saw and he had <laughs> 90 days of all things. And he turned around and said, holy shit, what do I do? And the the gal was like, you say yes, and and that worked out for yeah. you. And right. now you're a sponsor of 36 years, right? Or, no, how long have you had your current sponsor? 35 years. I got 35 this. Years. I got this the sponsor I have now. Richard has been my sponsor since I was about a year sober. 35 wow. years. That's incredible, man. Yeah, it is. It's beyond incredible. And what you know, that's. That's that's very special. I've I've had I've had my sponsor for um, just over four years now, and um, he's he's the only sponsor that I've had, um, and uh, I'm I feel very lucky to have found him. Um, but but I know a lot of other people that go through the same struggle where you know they they ask one or two or three people to to sponsor them. What was what was that? that like for you to to switch sponsors after your first year and and to find your now sponsor the first sponsor i had was named al and you're right his first reaction as i said to him will you sponsor me he looked at the woman standing next to me and said what do i do and she said you do it and he had 90 days the reason i asked him to sponsor me was because i heard him in the rooms and he drank jack daniels and i drank jack daniels so i figured that's a good reason to ask him because we had something in common um but you know that's always been an important point to me is that it's not about time it's -hmm. about willingness it's about you know he didn't have probably anything more than the first three steps under his belt yeah. But that was really, really, really helpful because when I sat down at Howard Johnson's that night with him and had that really, really bad coffee with him, <laughs> I wanted to do the ninth step. I said, can you tell me how to do the ninth step? And thank God he looked at me, he goes, let's talk about one. Let's yeah. talk about two. Yeah. When, I trans- when I transitioned to the sponsor I have now, to be honest with you, it was because the first sponsor wasn't doing well. Mm-hmm. His sobriety hadn't quite um, materialized as, as, as much as he would have liked. And eventually, to be honest with you, several years later, he did die of this disease. Um, so I was a little bit lost in, in that, in that vacuum, um, of thinking I was doing okay. Cause I'm going to meetings and my life was starting to take off and things were starting to go well, but making my way to a new sponsor, um, who actually asked me to work the steps was, as much as it was uh, pretty simple, he wasn't asking me to do anything that was complicated. He was asking me to do some awful hard stuff that I didn't, I didn't think I could do. Yeah. And he sat with me in the transition, I will say in a, in a, in a couple of uh, instances here um, were, were groundbreaking for me because 
as you know, as I mentioned, my 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 history was of being abused and I had been abused by men. Mm-hmm. And my sponsor was a gay man. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't know how to trust men. Still mm-hmm. have a real struggle with that from time to time now. Mm-hmm. But what ended up happening was he recognized that. And I remember after uh, I asked him to be my sponsor, I said, you know, will you be my sponsor on the phone? And he said, well, I'll have to think about it. I said, mm-hmm. oh, goodness. And so, you know, called him a couple of days later. He said, yeah, I've decided to do it. And I said, great, we got together. And after our first sit down to talk, which was just kind of like looking at the steps where I was and what my history was, I was leaving and I said to him, I said, can I ask you something? He said, yeah, what? And I said, why'd you have to think about it? And he said, oh, he said, well, I'm a gay man. You know that, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, you're a very handsome young man. And I went like, oh, shit. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, I wanted to, I'm summarizing here, but he said, I wanted to make sure that my, you know, my reason for doing this was right and that my intentions were clear. Yeah. And I looked at him, I took a big breath and I said, well, are they? <laughs> and he looked at me and he said these words, he said, oh no, you'll never have to worry about that. That will never, ever happen. And that was 35 years ago. And that man was the first man I ever learned to trust. And I have, you know, slept in the same room with that person. I've laid in the same bed next to him when I was, I had a friend that died and I came over to his house and I needed someone to hold me. Never, never has he hurt me. Never, ever has he even thought about that. He's been the best man at my wedding. We've gone to Japan together to visit my wife's family there. And he lives in Arizona now and has Parkinson's, is not doing well. And, um, you know, that's just life on life's terms. Um, And there's no one I'd rather be, you know, uh, by his side. I'd rather be by his side. Uh, If I wasn't for him, I wouldn't have uh, been able to do the, you know, uh, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have had that path to follow. But that transition was rather incredibly um, helpful to me. Mm-hmm. He also did, like you said, uh, help me with that that part of the program, which was how do you get past step three? How yeah. do you do that? How do you do that? But yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know, and that third step is, um, I it's it's a bear for a lot of people, and you know, I, I have a sponsee right now that is working step four. Um, sponsee, if, if you're listening to me, um, <laughs> maybe you should call me to set up a time that we can do your fourth step. So anyway, I know he watches the show after he's working right now, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but yeah, you know, that, that fourth step, uh, so I'm on my second fourth step right now and man, I'll tell you what that second fourth step. That has been a wild ride. I mean, it's I I laid out everything that I did on that step as a comparison to the first one that I did, and it is so much more in depth. And I really honestly thought that my second round and the rounds after that were all going to be, you know, these kind of rounds that were going to be more relevant to what's happening now. And a lot of it is relevant to what's happening now, but there's also some stuff that I don't think that I was ready to kind of get behind and to really kind of talk about and everything until I had completed that first round of steps and until I was able to get into recovery and really kind of solidify and and dig my feet into 
knowing that it's going to be safe to talk about this in front of another person and that, you know, I can trust that person, like you said, Kevin, to trust somebody and know that I'm not going to be judged for all of my things that I've done in the past, you know, and, and to, to be able to sit with my sponsor is so special to me now and, and know that I can tell him anything and without judgment to be able to get advice or to be able to, uh, maybe even hear things that I don't want to hear. Um, but you know, but that's the beauty of a sponsee and sponsor relationship and coming into that relationship, he said, I'm not going to be your friend. And I was okay with that. But like you, this relationship that I have with this man now is so special that he is actually a friend of mine, but I didn't have that expectation going into this as this was going to be a friendship. I looked at it as more of a, you know, almost like a mentorship type of thing. There's two things that I say whenever I start sponsoring people. And, you know, once we've sat down and had that kind of long first talk to really see if this was even something we wanted to move forward on and make sure it's a, maybe a fit, I guess would be the best word. But whenever anyone asks me, I always say, first of all, I say, just in general, I say, well, it's an honor to be asked and let's talk about it. But after we've decided to move forward and had that long chat, I say a couple of things. And number one is I say, you know, um, this is your, this is your thing. I'll, I'll share my experience, strength and home, but this is your, this is your thing. And I tell them, I will take no responsibility for your relapse and I will take no credit for your recovery. This is all yours. The other thing that I tell them, which is what my sponsor gave me, and these are all things that I just, these are exact words that my sponsor would say, is um, once I've gotten to know someone and I really let them know that, you know, I'm I'm in your corner and I, and, and, you know, there, there's a, a brotherly love, so to speak. There's a, there's a fellowship and there's a love in this fellowship. And I'll say to them, I love you and I'll never, ever leave you. I'm just short of a nuclear blast. You got me in your corner. And then I'm clear to them and I look them in the eye and I say, but if I drink, all bets are off. Yeah. That's it. That's just, that's just the clarity. Whatever happens after that and the relationship is up to our higher powers. Right now, there's not three of us on this call. There's all three of us and our higher powers, you know, and I recognize that when I'm one-on-one and working with someone as a sponsee. And I recognize that every second that with them, with that, you know, whenever I'm with my sponsor, I recognize it's not just the two of us. You know, there is an extraordinary spiritual essence that I can see in him and originally couldn't see in myself. And now I see it's 100% with both of us. It's just this incredible um, opportunity to really be spiritually connected with another human being, recognize that's what, that's what this is all about for me. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's awesome, Brett. What about you, man? What's what's what is your whole um, ideas on surrender and um, you know and and serenity, man? It's funny that you asked that. I actually got an assignment from my sponsor recently to ask different people about their definitions of surrender. So you guys are kind of helping me with my homework a little bit. Oh. Are you taking notes? <laughs> I don't have a notepad in front of me, but I'm definitely going to come back and, and jot down some notes later <laughs> on. Awesome. So, so what did your sponsor say? Why did, why did you get the assignment, Brett? What is, what why did was I get the, the assignment? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because I struggle with surrender because I want to be in control and run things and be the boss. <laughs> okay. okay. I think, I think that's kind of normal though. Like I, especially for addicts, like, 
I don't know, Kevin, do you think that was that a normal thing for you to, to feel like you've, you've got to be in control and, mm-hmm. and, and the idea that, you know, that, that we have to, we have to get okay with this idea that we're not always in control. Um, yeah, man. In fact, yeah, the, yeah, the piece, the piece for me that really hones you hone in on it when you talk about control, right? Because now we're talking about our will, self will run riot. We're talking about third step stuff. Yeah. And, you know, we keep, we're, we're, I don't, I don't know if this, it doesn't matter if this conversation never gets past the third step, that's fine. Cause that's exactly, <laughs> if you can't get those three down, but the interesting thing for me is that, yeah, here I am. Anybody that's, you know, feels like, you know, 36 years is impressive. I can't, I can't tell you that my life isn't wonderful. I can tell you that just if you talked to me about a month ago or, or a little more than that, you know, I had flipped it all up on its head again. I mean, I was taking my will back. I couldn't figure out whether I was chasing my tail or not. I'm like, what is wrong here? The nice thing is that used to take me, you know, months, maybe even years to figure out what was wrong. And then that much longer just to get back on track. One of the things that I've noticed now is that because these habits of sobriety, these habits of recovery are in place, it took me two weeks. I mean, it took me two weeks from the day I realized it and said, oh, you're taking your will back. But here's the here's the thing that I often have recognized. When I'm struggling with the third step, I can keep it's like I'm it's like I'm taking a freaking bat and hitting myself over the head. Do the third step, do the third step, do the third step. And I'm not. Matter of fact, the harder I hit myself with the bat, the less likely I am to do the third step. What I've learned is that if I'm struggling with the third step, it's probably a good time to go back to the second step and really hone in on that. And I had to do that recently, 36 years sober, whoopee doo, right? And then I realized when I started honing in on the second step, I didn't even think God could restore me to sanity. I just didn't. I had to sit up one night and go, I'm not even sure you can do this, God. So where did I go from there? Did I beat up? Did I keep hammering on the second step? Nope. I'm like, oh, we're at the first step, aren't we? Damn it. (laughs) And that would have been, and I'll tell you what, that would have been a luxury. And then I realized I'm not even at the first step. You guys know step zero, page 25 in the big book, just to throw out a reference that maybe we should or shouldn't. But page 25 in the big book talks about that place where we have to decide. It's the last paragraph on the bottom of the page. And it talks about we come to this place where we have to make a decision. Do we want to keep going to the bitter ends, right? Keep doing what we're doing and go to the bitter end or the second part of that, the other option accept a spiritual solution. And that's before you even get to step one, it's step, we euphemistically call it step zero. And it's always really helpful for me to refer to that. So I had to go all the way back to step zero. And then I knew where I was. Kevin, what do you want to do? You want to do it your way or you want to do it a spiritual way? It wasn't asking me to do step one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, just what do you want to do? And then I'm like, all right, I don't want to do it my way. I'll do it a spiritual way. Damn it. And then I could work on step one again and step two, right? Building blocks, really important for me. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, it's it's so important. And, and, and the idea that we have to go take one step at a time and to have that journey happen for us and to, to prepare for the next step is so important. And... Um, you know, it's, man, it's, it's such a journey to do the steps full all the way through one time. And it's even 
a better journey now for me to do them, you know, in my second round of steps. And, and Kevin, you've, you've been around for, for, for a few years. Um, same with Brett and, you know, I'm, I'm sure you guys can chime in on this too, but have you, have you noticed the change in when you do another round of steps Mm -hmm. and do you notice that, that relief that comes with it, even, you know, maybe after doing it more than two or three times? Yeah. My, my, are you asking me or Brett or both of us? Well, both man. Yeah. All right, Brett, you start. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I actually just restarted my steps again because i i got a new sponsor not too long ago and uh and he suggested we just start back over at one so i'm currently on my first step again so yeah it's definitely uh definitely a little bit different this time around because when i like the first time i did it was pretty early on in my recovery now i have just over seven years so the circumstances circumstances of my life has changed so yeah it's definitely different going through it a second third time you know uh i guess i guess this is my third time doing step one i think it's the third yeah third time um yeah definitely it's different i'm I'm seeing different elements of my life i'm seeing things from a different perspective it's it's definitely different when i was uh doing the steps the first time of course you know my as as you remember from the episode 33 um i talked about probably how my sponsor to this day will tell me and tell anybody that that was the longest fifth step he's ever have to ever has had to sit through and it was pretty intense and it was necessary but when i did this when i did my second round of the steps it was really really one person there was one person in on the ninth step list one and it was just such a really tumultuous terrible time in my life but i'm going to say it real clear the reason I had to do that second round of the steps wasn't because it was some thing that I was just kind of trying to do and sort through. Um, I had gone on a dry drunk. When I had about 12 years sober, my life had changed so much from that high school dropout to you know a guy with a college education, a guy who couldn't keep a job to a corner office in Manhattan, all this stuff, right? Wife, kids, beautiful house, our apartment in Park Slope, Brooklyn. Things were really on, on target and I got too busy for this stuff. And over a period of the year, you know, my 12th year, 13, 14, 15, over a period of those four years, I slowed down on things. I didn't have time to do the prayer and meditation. Didn't have time to do service, right? So sponsees kind of drifted away. Didn't have time to maybe work the steps and call my sponsor. And eventually, of course, what didn't I have time for? To go to meetings. And it didn't happen overnight. It happened you know, first year was a little less. Second year was a lot less. Third year, I went to one meeting, went late, left early. Fourth year, nothing. An entire year of no meetings, no program, no nothing. And I was on a dry drunk bender like you can't believe, not a drop of alcohol. And there I was, didn't know how to talk to my wife, didn't didn't want to be with my kids because I just couldn't relate to them anymore. And I worked till two in the morning, took a car service home and sat in the kitchen and just tried to think of ways to kill myself. And that's what a dry drunk looked like. And it was pretty awful in the end. But when I came back and did the steps again, and my spon- I hadn't talked to my sponsor in over a year, and he said, I'll never forget that. So I finally get on the phone with my sponsor. I'm an absolute mess. And I'm telling him all this stuff that's been going wrong, fired from my job, wife and I don't know what to do. Everything's terrible. And what does he say to me? He goes, anybody who's listening, take really close notes, because I've never. I know you've never heard this before. Brett, take a note on this, right? You ready? <laughs> I'm ready. I'm just just kidding. He said, tomorrow, Kevin, you just might want to go to a meeting. 
Mm. And I was like, oh, shoot, this is where I am. But yeah. that was it. The next day I went to a meeting. What happened after at that meeting? At that meeting, some nut asked me to sponsor them. God knows what they thought I had in me, but they asked me to sponsor. And you know what I did? I said, okay. And within 90 days, like everything I had lost, and not the job, not the relationship with my life, not, not my ability to be a good dad, but everything I had really lost, my spiritual connection, my serenity, all that came roaring back. It took a while, but it got there. And then when I did those, that second round of the steps, man, oh man, was that hard as heck because that was humbling, terribly humbling, really brutal. But what I got out of it was a clear picture of my character defects, a really deeper understanding of my shortcomings. And from those six and seven, step six and seven, I, you know, I learned not to beat myself up. I learned not to hate myself for my character defects. But the flip side of that is I also learned how deeply I need my higher power in my life because I can't do this. That's what a dry drunk taught me. That's what a dry drunk that, you know, 13 years of active addiction, prostitution and jails did not teach me. The dry drunk taught me how much I need God in my life. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's really powerful, man. Um, you know, and, uh, like, like, um, Ian, thank, thank you for all your comments, brother. It's always good having you on the show, man. Um, so Ian, Ian made a comment while you were talking about doing the steps multiple times. It's kind of like watching a movie, uh, two or three times in a row. And on some of those movies, you, you pick up on other little tidbits, um, that you've missed the first time. And, uh, definitely, definitely like watching a movie, um, over and over and, um, definitely blessings coming from that. Um, so yeah. And, and the white knuckling it part too, man. I, you know, I, I got into a bit of, um, early in recovery, I, I was house sitting for my, my parents and, um, I had gone back and reverted to kind of my old self and my old self, when I would, when I would house sit for them, my, the first stop I would make on my way home from work and inactive addiction was at the pizza parlor and I would pick up like three large pizzas so that I, I didn't have to go anywhere. Right. I had food if I was hungry and stuff and, and kind of at the end of my addiction, you know, I, I was eating on a regular basis. It wasn't something that I was trying not to eat anymore. Um, and I, I, I had ballooned up to like almost 400 pounds. Um, and so, and, but, I, I kind of started reverting back to those old ways and, you know, and, and I knew that I was in trouble when my sponsor about day three, I don't think I had moved from the couch. And the third day I called and sick to work and said, Hey, I don't, I I'm, I'm too sick to come in today, which was an absolute lie. Nothing was wrong with me, but, but I was so comfortable sitting in that isolation and growing up being an only child, I think for me was a little bit dangerous because I was so used to being alone at times and so used to not having anybody around to entertain me. And, you know, um, <laughs> thank you, Ashley. Um, totally threw me off uh, train of thought out the window. Um, okay. So isolation, right? We're, we're doing isolation here, but, but being an only child for me and Kevin, maybe you can relate a little bit to this too. The isolation part for me feels very comfortable, but what I had to learn in early recovery was that I can sit in that comfortable part of isolation, but it can easily become something that 
is too comfortable for me. And that's when I start ignoring phone calls from my sponsor or my sponsee brothers or sisters. I stop going to meetings. I stop, you know, getting up off of the couch and um, I stop, you know, taking showers, personal hygiene, that self-care that we talk about. And it was so weird because by the end of the third day, I was so involved in the isolation part. I felt like I had used and it was so crazy to me because this, just this feeling like I just felt so dirty and nasty and yucky and awful. Um, we, we had even, we even had drug tests at the house and I was like, man, maybe I should drug test myself. Maybe there's something in my pizza, um, you know, but, but that's the insanity of trying to find that balance in our lives and that harmony within ourselves and yeah. trying to understand ourselves more. So, yeah, it, it hurts a lot to be in isolation and it's a real sign of the self-centered fear that we all know so well. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's not like I like to be alone or I like to be with people, right? It's that I, I, I'm afraid I'm deathly afraid. And in the 12 and 12, it talks about, I'm afraid of losing something that I have or not getting something that I think I deserve. And the more time I spend alone in that world and that self-centered kind of egotistical brokenness, uh, the more I'm convinced that that's exactly what the problem is. The problem isn't, you know, whether I'm with people or without people. Uh, and in those days during the dry drunk, I was, I was about as functional as you can get in yeah. the outward, the outward experience, the outward perception of me was I, I had it all. I had everything. I mean, I was on planes going here, going there, meeting famous people or doing different things. You know, it sounded really cool. And, you know, I had everything going for me on the outside, but on the inside, I was a shell because on the inside, that's where the real isolation hits. That's where it really shows. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you talked about being uh, ballooning in weight. When I walked in these rooms, I was 115 pounds. Wow. You know, I was just so destitute physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. But that's what a shell of a human being looks like. It can be 115 pounds or 225 pounds. Right. You know, we could be huge or, or, or we could be perfectly fit, mm -hmm. right? We could be hitting the gym every day and maybe our metabolism is still popping. It doesn't matter what the outward appearances are. It's what's happening on the inside. And yeah, yeah I'm finding more and more that again, the, the program, the, the, the fellowship itself keeps me, you know, when, 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 you know, Brett talks about a, uh, you know, a sponsor saying is here's a little bit of homework. Well, I just, I don't know if he's on tonight. So if he's listening to this, he might be tuning in. He's probably sleeping. He goes to bed awfully early. So I don't have to worry about chatting. But if he watches this, <laughs> if he watches this, I was just chatting with one of the fellows that I work with and, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a struggle to do some of the homework. So to, so to speak, like a suggestion is really what mm. it is. Right. I suggest mm. that you, and my suggestion was go to a meeting a day, right. Go to a meeting a day because certain things are, are probably going to be helpful. And so we had a nice talk about that. I told them, I, I suggested that it might be helpful to make, you know, a real blessings list or a gratitude list or whatever you want to call it. But it was about trying to get the, the first and second step in place. All this stuff is about trying to really get ourselves out of our own stinking thinking, uh, mm -hmm. self-centered fear, and going to a meeting every day allows me to have, you know, uh, some new habits. Yeah. And so my my Neanderthal brain is all of a sudden going to start popping, going, "Oh, I want to drink." No, I don't. I mm -hmm. want to go to a meeting. Right. It takes a while to get there. Or 
you know, I, I want to, I want to, um, you know, I'm in that self-centered fear and I want to do it my way and I feel insane and I don't know what to do. So I'm going to fix this. And it's like, no, 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 no. Do a good second step here. Yeah. Right. And one of the ways to do that is to make a daily habit of looking at, I don't like gratitude lists, but the idea of maybe, you know, where did my higher power restore me to sanity in my life? Where? Just think of anywhere and then write that down. And then every day we get in the habit of looking at how the first step and the second step actually is manifested. And then that isolation is much less likely to happen, not because I'm still not afraid at times. A lot of people will say this phrase, and I'm not going to argue with anyone, you know, Mm -hmm. fear is a lack of faith. And I get it. I really get it. But Mm -hmm. to me, fear is something I'm pretty much going to have. But I can be afraid and still be a man of faith at the same time. I can have both fear and faith. It's what do I do when I'm in that place of fear? Mm-hmm. And my my answer is go to a meeting, you know, pray, call my sponsor, get on the phone with Brett. I just, you know, get those habits in place and they seem to make a big difference because uh, I can still be on the phone with Brett. I can even be on this call right now, you know, and have a little fear or trepidation. Mm-hmm. I can have that happening, but it doesn't stop me from living the, uh, taking the next sober step, as we say. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. And that that next sober step is uh, um, for for a lot of us is scary, you know. Uh, and and even uh, talking about doing like a, a you know your your eleventh step, uh, making that inventory, and really kind of like going over in your head. Do you do you have a process that you do at the end of the day to kind of like center yourself and to reflect on on how you were during the day and and how you felt you know, if there's any areas of your life that you could do better, uh, is there anything out there that you could tell, tell our, our viewers and, and us, you know, kind of what that process is like for you? I can tell you what it's like for me. I think the danger zone a lot of times is trying to emulate someone else's process because mine changes. And so sure. the process that I have, you know, today is very different than the one I had or different. It's, it's changed since last year, let's say. But for me, I mean, one of the things is I recognize that I have one of those monkey brains you ever hear that phrase? I had a monkey brain. All right. Whatever that phrase means to you. And I don't want to disparage monkeys. They're lovely, lovely, lovely creatures. <laughs> but, you know, I've got this brain that just won't slow down. So one of the things I got to do is I got to really remember as I'm going towards that. And again, these are, you know, 36 years of hopefully, you know, trial and error, but some patterns that have changed. You know, I take that time to have some some practices, some habits, some Mm. usual rituals, if you want to call them. And, you know, like, for instance, I'll give you my sponsors instead of mine for a minute, but, you know, he turns off all of his technology, he does everything that he needs to do. And usually an hour before bedtime, he lights some candles Mm. and he, you know, has them on his uh, thing and he has something he reads and he takes that time for, you know, as, as Ian saying, self-care to really slow down and let the monkey brain just kind of do its thing. And, the idea that I've come up with for me is that I need to I, I need to really focus on my breathing. So mm-hmm. I take a lot of time. It's it's I think it's a military thing actually. I learned it I think in a crazy movie that I was watching once. You know, <laughs> in for four, hold for four, out for four, hold for four. It's this breathing yeah. exercise, but mm-hmm. it works miracles for me. So good to regulate self-regulate. Yeah. But once I've gone once I've gone to that place, the thing that I do right away after that is I go into prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to connect with my higher power before I connect with my higher power. 
I need to open that door a little bit. And that prayer has been, you know, really, really helpful that, that, that time of prayer. And by the time I'm done with that prayer time, then, and only them, and then am, am I really able to go into that part of what we call the meditative state? And I will, I meditate in the morning, um, usually for about 15 minutes, but at that time of the night, that's when I can really have that calm and that peace where I'm not just going, Hey, what'd you do right and wrong today? It's really that asking God to show me what I need to see. And what's more important to me is, you know, what, what my higher power wants to disclose to me instead of me having this list of things that I might've done right and wrong. There's too much of a judgment zone for me where I start to beat myself up and that's not the way I want to go to sleep at night. Mm -hmm. So I really spend that time. And one of the things that I'm reading it right now about a gratitude list is a really important one. I don't have a gratitude list per se where I spend the time saying, what am I thankful for? Cause I, I would call that a, a thankful list, Right. but my gratitude, the way I measure my gratitude is, what did I do for other people today? What did I do out of gratitude, right? Mm -hmm. How did I share my experience, strength, and hope? I did that twice today with different sponsees. Exactly. Doing it right here, like what we're doing right here, communicating with each other and, and sober slogans and, you know, that, that name right there is a great name. You know, saying exactly, brother, love the way you express that, right? So now we're communicating with each other. We're now, that was, that was a real gift that was just given to me right now. I got that gift. So that's something that at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, I gave that to Kevin, right? I could hear that in my mind if I was the person who said exactly, brother, love the way you express that. I gave that to somebody. How was I generous? How was I caring? How was I nurturing? That's my gratitude list because my gratitude isn't measured by what I got. My gratitude is measured by what I've given. Yeah. And the last piece on my list after that is really, and this is new, this is brand new, is I try to really put myself in a place of, okay, now that you've really gone over the day, Kevin, can you help some, can you have some self-compassion and some compassion for others? Yeah. Because if I've done something that I need to make amends for the next day, I don't want to go in there with resentments. So I need to have that really tallied up and understand I'm going to have compassion for that other person, no matter what they did, because the steps teach me this. They teach me that when I do the eighth step, before I do the ninth step, there's a lot of things I need to do, but it's not just having the list. It's forgiving them for anything before yeah. I go to them and ask for forgiveness. So I have to have compassion at the end of the day. And then I really need to give myself that same compassion. That's a real trick for me. It's a brand new one. And I don't think I've talked about it much, but um, that's where I am now. That's my experience, strength and hope. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 really kind of um, great to hear you say that, man. Because uh, you know that that compassion that we, um, I, I think sometimes seek uh, the compassion that we want to be able to give, especially as in in empathy. Yes, thank you, Ian, for the empathy part. Right, um, uh, positive um, regard, um, being empathetic to others. Um, and, and that all comes down to how we view ourselves first and, and how we interact with ourselves before, um, at least for me, before I was able to kind of go out and, and, and really kind of try to interact with other people is that I had to learn how to love myself first and have empathy for myself and understand that, you know, progress, not perfection. And I'm not going to be perfect, even though I've wanted to come from a world of perfection and uh you know and all these things and 
to be able to forgive somebody else and to walk away from that forgiveness, knowing that they could say, well, you know, they either maybe they don't want to hear it or maybe they accept it. But the idea that it was doing it for myself was kind of hard for me at first because, uh, you know, I was like, well, you know, if, if I'm forgiving somebody else, you know, it, it, who am I really doing that for? Am I doing it for them or am I doing it for me? So that was kind of a hurdle that I had to get over, um, you know, early in recovery. And when I came up to that step where, you know, now I'm, I'm going through that list with my sponsor and, um, you know, it, it's, it's so powerful to, to be able to kind of have that freedom in mind that we can say, you know, it's, it's going to be okay. Either way it goes, I'm okay with it. You, you use the word freedom and it's the best word I can think of. You know, um, when I hear, when I hear the, the idea of making amends come up anytime, I always have to remember there's a lot of pieces to that. There's a lot of baggage that comes, especially, you know, we would want to say, especially in early sobriety, but I got to be honest, my third round of the steps was probably the hardest and the most fulfilling and the most rewarding, even more so in many ways than my first round of the steps and the first amends I made. But what I recognized over time and really understand, and it's straight out of the literature, is that because when we're done with that, we can walk free men and women. We can walk free women. We can walk free men. We can walk free human beings just moving forward in our lives. Sure, it's about not looking over my shoulder that somebody's going to catch up with me and say, hey, where's the money you owe me? Um, Mm -hmm. But it's a spiritual freedom, right? It's this sense of I'm free to do what? Move forward with my higher power. I can move forward with an understanding of exactly who I am and what place do I have in this world? And this place in my world is, I'll be honest with you guys, it's summed up in four words for me, to be of service to God and others. That's yeah. just straight straight out of our literature again. And I've lived by that. That's why I wake up in the morning. I don't always live by that, right. but I live for that. Right. Yeah. And and the service to others, man, that's, that's so important, you know, um, and that's where the the sponsorship uh, comes in. That's where uh, taking a service commitment comes in. That's where showing up early to a meeting and um, staying for the whole meeting. You know, we, we might not realize it, but if, if we, we get up early from a meeting that could, that could signal to somebody else that's a newcomer that, Hey, this is acceptable. This is okay. And now are we doing a service to them or are we doing a disservice to them? by, you know, leaving early. And I know that, you know, I've left early from meetings, but I really try not to. Um, I need to have a really good reason to to leave a meeting early um, because we also need to remember that we, we've got to sit through that meeting until we hear something that we need to hear. And if I don't hear it at that first meeting, then I'm going to go to a meeting right afterwards and I'm going to go to another meeting and I'm going to try to catch, you know, what what am I missing? Why aren't I hearing maybe something that's, that's really catching for me. And that's being of service to others. And that's where other people become of service to me, you know, and um, our higher power, my higher power is my group of people that I surround myself with. Um, and, and this constantly changing. I mean, right now, everybody in this room, Kevin, Brett, you know, everybody here, 
um, is my higher power. This is who I'm drawing energy from. This is where I'm getting my, my, my will to, to talk right now, you know, and all the feedback that we're getting from online and stuff. And, you know, but, but it all ties back into, have I been of service today? Yeah. Yeah, no, Cheryl's now mentioning through this pandemic, I, I have not had in-person meetings and I'm a tech guy, you know, working technology. Yeah. My job actually when the pandemic hit was to go home and help people use technology for our business. Like I was working 16 hours a day, yeah. but that also meant that technology was easy for me. And so when we jumped on Zoom, well, that was part of my, that was part of my job anyway. It was easy to yeah. do, but it was, but the trick was, yeah, but now what do I do? Like, how, how am I going to connect with people? How am I going to, you know, because how many meetings have we been on on Zoom? And at the end of the meeting, you know, we do our serenity prayer or whatever. And then you can see, you know, the people just go, you know, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. one can, no one can leave a physical room that quickly. Yeah. And, you know, and we all go out the door. And so what I had to do was, you know, learn to use the technology. I had to put myself in a place where I was not distracted. I had to step away from that. And I had to stay, I had to literally sit on my hands and not click and just stay there and be one of the last guys in the room. Now, one of the other tricks was for me, and I learned this early on, I don't even know when I started doing it. If there was a newcomer at that meeting, a fellow that was at that meeting, I just, I didn't know if it was going to work or not, but I would chat and I would just do a direct chat. And I'd say, Mm -hmm. here's my name here. You know, this is, I'm Kevin. Here's my number. If you ever want to talk. And, you yeah. know, I swear to goodness, I got more dis- I got more sponsees in that during the pandemic that I would, <laughs> you know, more people asking me them to, you know, to sponsor them. Yeah. And it was quite remarkable because it wasn't about the technology or about me or about them. It was about saying, God, how do I do this? Or yeah. higher power, how do I do this? And I think your example is great. There's a bunch of people, the people in your world are, you know, in essence, your power greater than yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and we reach out to them and go, Hey guys, how do we do this? Right. What do we do? How do we be of service? And we figured it out together and we just, we don't have to do it right. We just have to do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I almost, I almost feel like my support group is like my own little private poll community, you know, where I can throw a question out there and I can ask three or four people like, Hey, how do you balance your checkbook? Well, maybe that's not a really good example. But I don't know who's <laughs> checkbook, but um, you can't even get that, checks from a bank anymore. But that is a good example. What I mean, that's right? It's a great example, actually. It's it's a life. It is a life. Um, I've totally blanked again. Coronavirus. Um, it is a life skill that you know most people will have taught to them by probably a parental figure or maybe a class that they've done either in high school or in college, you know, on how to be um, financially responsible Mm -hmm. and coming out of an addiction. uh, You know, a lot of us, myself included, we, we don't know how to be financially responsible. Um, And the world that we live in today makes it very easy not to be financially responsible um, given technology and, the instant gratification and the constant instant gratification of updating your feed on Amazon prime, watching your package get closer and closer to your house. I am not saying that I have any experience doing this. No, that you're talking about Brett, right? That was Brett. Yeah. That was that? Brett. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Watching yeah. his refrigerator come, come to his house. It's part of his homework. Yes, we know. <laughs> 
he'll get there. He'll get yeah. there. It's okay, yeah. Brett. We'll support you in this. You can ask us. You can you Thank can pull you. us anytime. We'll give you all the help yeah. you need. It's okay. I appreciate Brett. that. Thank you, you. You have a direct line to my desk. <laughs> I will you you have no direct line to my desk, Brett. No, sorry, dude. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> yeah, but you know those life skills that we that we seem to lack when we go into the rooms. I mean, other than like common sense skills for a lot of us, you know. But these skills that that people that have, you know, not gone down this path seem to have. And um, checkbooks really bad. I, I don't even have a checkbook. Wait, do I? No, I don't. Um, but yeah. yeah. A check, checkbook is a perfect example. I, mm-hmm. I spent this past Saturday with uh, one of the guys that I sponsor. And we talked about, of course, all the stuff that we typically talked about. And eventually, for some reason, it got into finances. And the next thing you know, I'm whipping out my phone and showing them like my TD Ameritrade account or this, mm. that, and the other thing. Yeah. And we're talking about investing and we're stuff I couldn't do, yeah. stuff I wouldn't do. And I'm like, yeah, look at this. And the stock market went up and down. He just had some questions about like basic investing because he's a younger guy and hasn't done it like many of us. Mm-hmm. But, but I was able to tell him, I'm like, you see this? And I'm just holding my phone up. Like, I'm like, I couldn't, I couldn't write checks yeah. because I would be petrified my wife and i were married i was sober i don't know how many years and she went over to japan with the kids for the summer and she said honey i'm going to be gone for five weeks you're going to have to pay some bills while i'm gone Uh she left the checkbook a pen stamps (laughs) and told me what to do and you know every every day i got the mail and i had a heart attack when a bill came in and i just piled them (laughs) up and piled them up And finally, I was on the phone with one of my guys that, you know, and and we were living in New York City, one of the guys that is in the program. And he said, what's the matter? And I said, well, I got to pay my bills. And I don't know. He goes, well, what's the matter? And I'm like, well, I don't like writing checks. I'm really scared to write checks. I could never do it. Yeah. And he said, he looked at me, he says, Kevin, you work in technology. I said, yeah. He goes, you write checks? (laughs) I said, well, yeah. And he said, Kevin, do it online banking. And I said, no, I could never do that. He said, Kevin. You work in tech truck. And so I did it. And yeah. I, you know, did my bills online. Two months later, I was investing in like an IRA. I went from yeah. a guy that could, because I reached out to somebody and told them, I'm afraid. Yeah. Right. Yeah, man. I, cool. I had a lot of fear with, with financial stuff. Like I, I didn't have trust in banks. I would go to the Mexico meat market to cash my checks uh, once a week. And um, I stored cash in my pockets and occasionally I would lose cash because cash would be falling out of my pockets. Um, and it was, it was a very, um, it was a very uh, simple system, um, very unreliable, but I knew how much money I had left on my person. And when I came into the rooms and to be able to now, you know, have multiple bank accounts set up, I, I, I have one set up solely for bills and I have one set up for my own little personal spending, which is Amazon. And I even put gasoline in there because I, I you know, I, I do Uber and, and Lyft and so, but, you know, but that account is, is my play money and all the other money that I have goes over to savings and to my bills. And, you know, for me, that works out really well now that we're able to have automatic deduction taken out for certain bills. Um, we are able to, um, you know, do all that. But I, I made it a point not to have those two accounts linked because I still have some distrust issues with myself and finances. I want to kind of like ease into it. And um, but it's it's worked out so far, you know. But, but also sitting down with somebody and like going over your finances and like, what bills do you have? 
and and nowadays it's so easy to acquire a new bill you do a, a subscription somewhere you know on your iphone or your your android phone and and now you have a 499 bill every month on the 5th of october uh, or it's the fifth of the month it's incredible the things that we can do with the help and support of the people that love us yeah my my sponsor and I, you know, we share some, you know, over, over all these years, we've shared a million things. Like I said, he was the best man at my wedding and he knows my my wife and my children and loves my mother and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know his his family too. And, um, but I mean, you know, we've talked about everything, including, including finances, including stocks, including, you know, uh, what shoes that we're getting and, you know, what's the best pair of socks to get. And, uh, you know, there's, we don't have to compartmentalize these things, but the important thing is that usually my relationship with the people in the program are based on spiritual principles, not on those other things. Right. My my basis of a relationship with Brett or with Carl or with Richard, my sponsor, or with anyone else, and that's the nice thing. Then it's not just the people in the program. My base, my my wife is not in sobriety. She can have a drink of wine once every once in a while when we go out on Friday night to have a, a meal. She's not in the program, doesn't need to be in the program. But my relationship with her is based on spiritual principles. My relationship with my children is based on spiritual principles. So all these things that I need to do, right, to be a dad, to be a husband, to be a member of society, um, I'm not doing them just to see what I can get out of it or, you know, how I can manufacture some new knowledge or skill sets or become a better person at investing or buying socks. It's about, you know, being a human being having a spiritual experience with another human being having a spiritual experience so we can go together. And the cool thing is we get to hopefully, you know, learn to write our checks, but you know, um, I, I, I think it, it is about being spiritually fit. Yeah, absolutely, man. And, um, and Cheryl, uh, she, she threw a message up there. Uh, who do we trust to help with these things uh your family has been ineffective in this area um kevin who would you trust with these type of things you mentioned your sponsor richard um you know and and i i would trust my sponsor i also trust my support group i'm out there um you know those are people that i trust what what about what about kevin and brett Who, who do you trust in your circle yeah i think um ineffective is an interesting word Right. Because I think uh, without going down the rabbit hole on my own mother, father, family dynamics, um, boy, ineffective. That's a polite word. Right. To to where the where things started and ended. Um, uh, But one of the biggest things that I remember in early sobriety actually was really understanding, you know, that part of my wanting to get the help from people who couldn't help me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Maybe maybe not even because they were just you know, trying to derail me, but they just didn't have that skill set. Or in my case, they were enabling, more likely to enable and be codependent. That was one of the phrases that I, you know, could throw out there uh, to make that clear, is that that's insanity to me. Not, I'm not saying anything about Cheryl in general or anybody saying this, but to me, that was doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. It's the same thing like drinking and thinking that I'm going to be able to handle it. It's the same thing like, you know, uh, my checks are piling up on my on my, um, on my my table because I don't know how to write checks, but mm-hmm. I'm not going to reach out for help 
or if I do reach out for help, let's say, you know, um, my parents were lovely people, but they wouldn't teach me how to write the checks. Mm -hmm. They would pay the bills for me, which would help me for that month. But then what would happen the next month? The checks would pile up again. So I think the idea was, first of all, realizing what I'm doing is not working. Mm-hmm. And then recognizing that two things, I needed to get maybe some other avenues for help. My sponsor, maybe, yep. Uh, mostly for me, it was a spiritual uh, journey. Uh, and then what happened was when I was, ma- when I was able to make those really hard first baby steps and maybe pay those bills and do it wrong and then learn and then pay them again, do some of it wrong, not all of it wrong, do it again, do it again, do it again, I gained confidence. Mm-hmm. And now it wasn't that I didn't need people. It's just that I didn't need the people that couldn't help me. <laughs> I right. wasn't going to rely on people to do things honestly. And we talk about that in the 12 and 12, right? Really, we do. Because that's about the, the unreasonable expectations. Mm-hmm. It's really clear to me when I expect my parents to change <laughs> and they don't. And I keep waiting for them to change. Now, I'm just talking about my parents, that that's on me, right? That's my expectations that are getting me in trouble. My parents are still, you know, just kind of on the merry-go-round doing their thing, wondering why I'm screaming and jumping up and down that my life is off rail, off the rails. The bottom line is I need to get those real expectations in line. And that means I have to have the humility. My sponsor taught me a long time ago something. Because I said to him that I, I need to align my, my, my idealism with reality, which means if ideally everything went the way it was supposed to, right, then everything would be good. But the reality is people will never see what they really need to do. And he said, I might change one word there, Kevin. And I said, what? And he said, I might exchange reality for humility. I need to, you know, really reconcile my idealism or my expectations with humility. I can't control other people. I can't get them to do what they, what I think they should do. And I certainly can't get them to help me in a way that they're incapable of doing, but I can take the step to reach out to somebody that my, uh, my sponsor, uh, would be a good example of that. Um, but yeah, certainly I can really relate to unsolicited help causing harm. Oh my gosh, that is a huge one. People trying to tell me what I should do, what I shouldn't do without me actually reaching out for that. And that's really one of the beautiful things in the program. I don't find that. I don't sense that most people are going to give me unsolicited advice. Like no one here on this call tonight is telling anybody what to do. We're just doing experience, strength, and hope. And my sponsor, I don't know about you guys. I've had the same sponsor for 35 years. And there have been maybe twice in those 35 years that I've literally almost begged him, please tell me what to do. Please tell me what I can do. Twice that he maybe acquiesced to that. But always he would say, I can't tell you what to do, but I can tell you what I would do. I can tell you what I've done and I will support you in any way. But the one of the beautiful things is from that, he has told me over and over and it's proven true. He says, Kevin, I've, you know, if you want to do it, do it. If you want to try something, try something. And he's told me really honestly, he says, Kevin, I've never seen you. I've never seen you fail at anything that you put your mind to. Anytime you've made a decision to do something, you've succeeded. And that's allowed me then to realize, remember what I said earlier? He takes no responsibility for my relapse. 
and he takes no credit for my recovery, right? But he'll stand right next to me and stand right behind me. He's always right next to me and right behind me. And I'm always right next to you, Brett, right next to you, Carl, and I'm right behind you. But I'm not going to do it for you. It's just, there's just right. no point in us doing that. But I hope that, I hope that helps. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and that unsolicited advice, um, I, I think is is hard for us sometimes because we can get into the idea that, you know, um, man, I've I've got the best, the best advice for you, and this is gonna be the thing that's gonna help you the most. And sometimes I think we forget the part of that journey for people is that they need to come up with a way for themselves to do it for themselves. And I think that sometimes, um, you know, I've even set myself up for failure, you know, giving advice to somebody and saying, oh, this is going to be the best way for you to do it. But I have to remind myself that it's not the best way for them if it comes from me. I can give them some tips, some pointers. I can give them some a little direction. But like you said, Kevin, I'm going to be behind them rather than leading the charge. Because I want them to come up with a way that is going to be, um, you know, something that is going to be helpful for them and something that is going to be their own creation and their own idea. Brett, I'm going to ask you, brother. So <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> I know I'm going to I know you are. I know you are. And you're very attentive. And I'm going to ask you, based on this idea of unsolicited advice and knowing the practices that we're putting into place in the program that help us in all of our life. How do you intend to take this practice of not giving unsolicited advice into your parenting? Oh, oh, yes. That's please. a good one. That's a very good one. Yes. Um, wow. Unsolicited all of you. Brett. I see that, and it's, it's. I'm like, oh no, I'm, I'm, I'm the full screen. I'm not. Yeah. And this is being recorded, so you know your child yes. can actually hold you to whatever you say. Yeah. Is I your know. wife on tonight? Uh, she said she was going to be, but I haven't yeah. seen her in the comments, yeah. so I'm not sure. She, she, she was on a little earlier. It smells like there's like there's food being prepared in the kitchen, so Good she times. might have gotten mm -hmm. off. All right, let's get uh, back to our topic now because yeah, I'm dying to hear the answer. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm definitely not trying to avoid the question. Oh, no, not at all. Uh, I, I like what's been said tonight about about being behind someone but not telling them what to do. And I've I've experienced that with sponsorship as well, where I've when I first when I had my first sponsor, that was one of the things that I thought was like, OK, I surrender and now here you make all the decisions for me. And I very quickly learned that that's not what sponsorship is. And that's not what this program is about. You know, we're now, now that we're in recovery, we have that freedom to make our own decisions. Whereas before I didn't have that freedom to make decisions. And I, and I've, I've seen that example through sponsorship of asking for advice and, and not being told what to do, but here's what I've done. Here's what's worked for me. Um, so I'd like to think that as far as parenting goes, that I would be able to to live that same same way that I've seen that example. Um, and I and I was listening to another podcast um, a few weeks back. I can't remember which podcast it was. I'm subscribed to quite a few. And they were talking about just the idea of, as a parent, like letting your children make mistakes. 
Like your goal is not to to keep them in this little protective bubble where they can't do anything. And and as soon as you see them start to to veer off the path, like you run in there and you grab them and and whatever. Your your role is to keep them from being in danger. Oh, my wife is on. Um, <laughs> just saw that comment. No, she's all ears, brother. Um, you know, it's not it's not to keep them from from making mistakes. You you still have to protect them from you know harming themselves, killing themselves. But at the same time, you have to let them make those mistakes. And the guy was using the example of of monkey bars, and you know, I'll see my kid through the window he's up on the monkey bars i'm not going to run out there and, and and pull him off the monkey bars and tell him not to do that because he could fall or he could you know hurt himself i'm going to let him make those decisions but if he's doing something that's reckless and endangering himself i'm going to step in and, and tell him you know here's why we shouldn't do this because it's dangerous um so that's kind of i guess if that answered the question that's kind of where my head was at yeah yeah, I, I think so. I, I don't have kids, so um, I'm I'm out on this uh, particular question of topic. Um, but yeah, but but I, I think that, you know, but it also comes I think it also comes down to relationships, too. Right. Um, Brett and Kevin, you're you're both um, married or Brett. Wait, are you? Yeah, Brett's married. I'm, I'm married. Um, Brett's married. Okay. Yep. Sorry. Happily, sorry. happily married. Christy, sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm sure I'll hear about that later. Um, <laughs> you know, but but also relationships, right? Because I think that, you know, sometimes we can even dive into, you know, wanting to protect our, our partner or, or our spouse and um, wanting to, you know, protect the ones that we love. Mm. And uh, so, but, you know, sometimes we have to let them make their own decisions and sometimes that's really hard to to do so um, I'm, a, I'm a father of four and a grandfather of three my okay. um, my old my oldest grandson is now engaged to be married and wow. you know life happens like that in a blink mm -hmm. and i think that one of the most important things that i've recognized and my youngest son is 22 now and we were talking just the other day because he was over in Brazil and he was seeing some friends and he's a senior in college and he was flying back and he was doing all these things. And, he's, and we were talking because he came back in quarantines and we were talking at a distance about, you know, when he graduates. And he says, yeah, he says, you're not going to be able to keep up with me. You know, I'm going to be I'm going to have so many things on my plate. I'm going to be doing all these. He's got a company. He's doing everything. And uh, I said, oh, I said, Tyler, I, I've long since stopped trying to keep up with you. And he laughed and I said, do you know why? And he said, yeah. And I said, because I just want to, I'm just going to be here for you. In other words, as a parent, one of the things I've recognized is that it's more important to just stay still. Um, you know, because when I'm chasing after them, they're wondering where the hell I am. <laughs> you know, I, I'm usually chasing after the wrong thing. And it's the same thing with a sponsee. You, ever, you know, one of the best things about the big book is it talks about don't chase someone who's not mm -hmm. ready. Don't yeah. go, don't, don't, you know, if somebody's not ready, put your energy into somebody else. And I've got four children, but, you know, I've got two, two younger boys, two older mm -hmm. daughters and two younger boys. So the two older daughters, of course, are living their lives and the two younger boys I've been raising. And, you know, when one doesn't need me, you know, or is doing his own thing, if I'm running after him, I'm probably going to miss the fact that the other one does need me and yeah. is ready to hear something. So again, that's that's kind of one of the biggest things I've I've learned is to stay still, 
and you know really take those those deep breaths and recognize you know god will let me know or my higher power will let me know when one of them needs me i don't have to be their higher power you know we often say that in the rooms too it's a great thing with the parent with being a parent they have their own higher power and i'm not it yeah good stuff good to remember yeah and and the so i'm i'm gonna jump in because i i actually feel um like i i have had kids in the past um i i work as a substance abuse counselor uh and moved into a clinical supervision role now uh but you know now so it's an interesting um thing for me because i i would have clients that needed that support and that structure and and needed that little push to get them through certain things and to get them you know on the right track right in early recovery but then when i got my first couple of sponsees I had to remind myself that I am not the counselor right now. I am not the person setting up the, hey, you have homework and it's going to be due next week and we're going to review it when you come in for your next session. And, you know, in in trying to provide that structure for them, I had to step back and, and learn that, you know, I don't need to be on them with a phone call if, you know, to check in on them and to make sure that they're doing what they need to be doing. Like I might be able to do with a client uh, if they're in a, um, you know, a clinical setting. If I see them in a group, you know, I can, in passing, I can say, hey, how is, how is the assignment going for you this week or something like that? And it, and it was really hard for me to, to take that separation at first because I wanted to call my sponsees when, when I first got um, my first couple of sponsees and I wanted to be on them. And I even had set up one... <laughs> One of my sponsees, I set them up like a whole, like, so we're going to be doing a step every month and um, we're going to be reviewing homework on this day. But I had to remember that it's their journey that they have to take and it's their journey that they had to go through. And so, um, yeah. Oh, Sober Slogans, you're leaving for the evening. Good night, brother. We appreciate you being on the show tonight, man. And And he didn't uh, even get to hear about Kevin's book. Oh, my goodness. Kevin, don't worry, Sober Slogans. This is a recorded broadcast, so. Be sure to check in um, after the after the uh, live stream is over. Even um, I forget. Even I forgot about my book by this point yeah. in the conversation. This is such a great time talking about yeah. real stuff. It really yeah. is. And not to change the topic, but we have birthdays coming up, and Brett has sent me a little message and he said, "Don't forget about birthdays." So, Brett, I'm going to turn the show over to you right now, brother, and um, let's uh, let's do our birthday segment right now, man. All right. Yeah. Let me click all the buttons. So, if you are celebrating a birthday in the month of January, like Kevin, who just celebrated on the 1st, there is a post on the page. I believe it's still pinned to the top of the page. Uh, You can leave your sober date down there in the comments, and you'll be added to the January celebration. And we're still celebrating people from the month of December, and I will go ahead and roll the video of the December birthdays.
right? And that's our birthdays, Brett. Man, what a great video. I love that music, man. Yeah, and it was um, brought to you by Doing It Sober. So if you guys are looking for some cool sober merch, they also do yeah. custom medallions and jewelry and all kinds of stuff. Be sure to head over to doingitsober.com and check out the wide variety of merchandise they have available there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, good music. It kind of gives me that like little like Caribbean vibe to it. It almost had like a steel drum vibe. Man, and I was like, am I back on the cruise ship for a minute? Well, in case you didn't know, the actual theme of Happy Birthday is a copyrighted song. So I couldn't play the Happy wow. Birthday tune for that video. That's why I picked, I just tried to find something that was kind of fun and upbeat. Yeah. Yeah. I like that, man. Well, Happy Birthday to everybody who had a birthday in December. And we are going to be doing our uh, January birthdays here coming up. So, like Brett said in the comment box, if you want to drop your clean date, if you're celebrating a birthday in January, Leave that clean date for us. Let us know where you're at. And um, we will be happy to add you to one of our birthday videos that we seem to be doing almost every stream now. So that's awesome. It looks like we have a lot of people that celebrate birthdays. So we're happy to celebrate that. Um, let's see, Cheryl, uh, you said that you had 18 months in January. Congratulations. That is amazing. If you are new to recovery and this is maybe your first day, first week, second day, 24 hours, first hour, welcome. This is the start of a new chapter of your life and i always like to tell people that are new in recovery or maybe people that have been in recovery for a long time a beautiful thing happened just now you never have to use again mm. and that is something that you can take with you and it's okay you don't have to use anymore so um we are so grateful that all of you have taken time to listen and kevin i would like to know about your book i i know nothing of your book but it wow i really like the cover art on that man thanks brother that's that really was, cool yeah that's a doug bartow he's a wonderful um wonderful gifted uh man who uh, runs a company called id29 here in the new york area um and i was very very blessed to have him put those artifacts together those uh those pictures that you just put up the book cover itself is a picture of me as baby I'll put it back. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, me as a baby. That's me. A uh, little alfalfa thing going. And yeah. uh, as you're looking at that, the uh, in the white dress is my biological mother. And in the black dress is my adoptive mother. Wow. Uh, those are two of the most beautiful pictures in the world. Um, and this book is called Dear Stephen Michael's Mother. And I'll give you the real brief version of it. Mm -hmm. It is a two-pronged story. It is about well, my, uh, my biological mother who put me up for adoption when I was born, of course, uh, you know that part of the story, uh, and it's my search. So mm. the story starts, the book starts as a search for my biological family, but then goes back and forth between the story of looking for her and what happened after she put me up for adoption. So it's a lot of what you just heard there. As mm -hmm. far as the recovery, you know, the, the real the real part of the recovery process, but yeah. it goes back and forth through that story. And, um, you know, the search concludes. And as we all know, I stop, you know, drinking and using drugs. But it's the story of how I got to both of those endings. Wow. That's that's really incredible, man. Um, yeah. And that that search um, is is powerful. I've I've done my own search and have yielded. Um, uh positive results from the search uh finding my my two of my uh, biological sisters who are twins 
Um, wow. Congratulations, and, uh, man. Thank you, man. But, you know, I don't think that I was ready to do it when I was definitely not in my addiction because, yeah. you know, I was a hot mess. But, um, you know, but but after I got I, I got clean and stuff, you know, that that whole journey was was so amazing for me. And, um, man, I'm, I'm going to download that that book on Audible, man, because I I want to I want to hear your story about that and, and what that was like for you. Shoot me off an email or a text or something. I've got a code I'll give you. I'll definitely make sure you get that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. And you recently narrated the uh, the audio book. Yeah, the audio the audio book just came out. That's really okay. exciting because it is just me. The voice you're hearing now is that's the whole darn oh, thing is so me cool. telling the whole story. So it's been wow. quite a journey. It's really exciting. Um, and by the way, I, I don't talk about this too much, but mm-hmm. um, that story was about looking for my biological father. But in this past year, I have found my or my biological mother. I'm sorry. But in this past year, I have found my biological father and I found two wonderful sisters and wow. they are. In, uh, yes. Yes. So you and I have way yeah. too much in common yeah. and we have got to hook up some other time yes. uh, and, um, you know, chat about this more. But it, it is quite the extraordinary experience to be sober and to know these people in my life that are, um, you know, strangers to me, you would think. Mm -hmm. And yet they mean, they mean the world to me, especially one of my sisters and I are so close. I can't imagine life before, you know, she came into my life and I can't ever imagine a day without her. She is just heaven, heaven. Yes. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to send this, over to my two sisters. Um, one of them's at work right now, and I think the other one either is just, uh, what time is it here? Oh, almost 7 o'clock? Yeah, she's been home for about an hour. Um, but yeah, man, you know, and yeah, so we'll, we'll definitely talk offline about that. Um, I, I don't get into too much family stuff when I'm on the stream here. Um, I try to keep it to myself, you know, and and yeah, but but we can definitely uh, talk about that. But I wanted to, to let you know that, you know, hearing that from you, is yeah. so cool because like I've, I've just recently have gone through that same experience and um, yeah. So I'm really happy for you. And I totally understand as, as an adoptee and that whole travel has been critical for me to, to realize that just like in recovery of any, of any of these things, um, the real healing happens in the, in the, in the journey. Yeah. Um, so for me, the searching was, you know, a real place of healing for me and processing and getting prepared for whatever I would find. And right. it's been tumultuous, very tumultuous. And I've gone through a lot. That's where I told you earlier, my life went upside down, upside down. Yeah. Um, you know, I, so yeah, I'm yeah. with you, brother. I'm with you. Yeah. But, but what a blessing to have in recovery and what a blessing that, we have been able to be present for some of those things. And um, like you, I don't know if your sisters have or children, um, but I I became an uncle and a great uncle overnight. Um, And uh, man, that, that was, that was a emotional roller coaster and ride just in and of itself, you know, like you growing up as an only child and um, you know, just wondering is there anybody else out there that is, you know, related to me? I mean, and not related from like, um, a, a family thing. Right. Because I have, I have two family trees now, right. I have my, my, 
adoptive family tree, which is my my main family, right? And but then I also now have my um, my birth tree. And um, were you given another name at birth? Mm-hmm. Do you remember? Can you put up the name of the book again, I brother? Can. My okay. name was Stephen Michael. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So this, this, uh, I'm going to let you be surprised. And anyone who is interested in reading the book, there is a reason it's called Dear Stephen Michael's Mother. It's mm-hmm. a real centerpiece of the book. I couldn't have named the book anything else. Yeah. Um, and you're going to, I would rather you read it and be, be not surprised, mm-hmm. but be, you know, come upon it the way I did yeah. in the story. But yeah, my name was Stephen Michael, my biological mother. Uh, her name is Elizabeth. And you see her in the picture there. She named me. Um, and I'm not going to say she named me, but I think uh, Catholic Charities was the adoption agency. Mm-hmm. And I was baptized Stephen Michael. And yeah. uh, I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know that until I was in my forties and, and, you know, that was quite a big undertaking to even find my name. In New York, I don't know where you're from originally, but in New York, the laws have been so stringent that you can't find out anything about yourself. Nothing. Yeah. You can't well, find out anything. And I had to I had to do the search. It took me two years. And it was a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. California here. So, you know, mm-hmm. uh, very, very safeguarding the um, both sides of the adoption, right? The parents that give up the child for adoption and then also safeguarding the child that has been placed in an adoption. And, um, yeah, man. So we'll, we'll definitely talk about that. Anytime, anytime at all. Really cool. Also to find out your journey about writing a book about it too, because I, I, you know, I've, I've thought about writing a book just about my, my life in general and, um, you know, so yeah, so that's cool. Cool brother. (laughs) Thanks, man. And yeah. yeah, anytime you want to talk about any yeah. of these topics, that's what we're here for, yeah. right? Be of Absolutely. support to each other. That's Absolutely. what we get to do on this spiritual journey. Yeah. Well, man, it's this has been a great episode, guys. I don't know about you, Brett. You're 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 kind of quiet over there tonight, but um well, I don't have I don't have experience with the yeah. thing, so I was just okay. letting you guys have your own moment there. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate yeah. that, man. Brett, do you have anything else uh, for the show tonight? Or um, I don't think so. I mean, we got a couple of announcements. Okay, cool. You want to do our announcements tonight? I would absolutely love to do our announcements. So Carl put a little ticker down there at the bottom, but just in case you guys didn't see it, we are going to be moving to Thursday night starting in February. Our first episode will be February the 3rd. And we're also, like like Carl mentioned before, we're going to have an episode the Monday and then on Thursday. So we're going to have two episodes in one week right there at the end of January slash beginning of February. So moving to Thursday nights, we also started a YouTube channel. So we have all the previous episodes are going to be on the YouTube channel as well as the live feed. Is that you, Carl? (laughs) Yeah, sorry. He gets all excited with the bells and whistles. <laughs> you yeah. got a little bored with my announcements? No, no. I'm just I'm trying to cheer you on, man. I'm oh, like, oh. got all these down pads. I, I just assumed you were watching a TikTok or something. Yeah, so we have the new uh we have the new YouTube channel. It's gonna have it has the live stream that you're watching now on there as well. So give us a follow and uh help grow the channel. You know, the more people we have subscribing and sharing and stuff, the more people we can hopefully reach with the recovery message which is our ultimate goal is to help reach other people that are struggling or are new in recovery. And, uh, and that's one way you can do that. And we also have the audio only version of the podcast 
<clears throat> that usually comes out about an hour or so after the broadcast ends. So if you're looking for that, if that's more your speed, um, just search Recovery Revolution Live on your favorite podcast player, and you can find the unedited version of this live stream. The only thing that's different yeah. is we cut out the five minutes of music at the beginning when we do the countdown um, yeah. <laughs> and the rest is completely unedited. So it's a good time. I think those are all my announcements. Oh, there's the, um, there's the applause. Yeah. Ah. I'm back. I, I guess we I get, we could, we could let Kevin tell people <laughs> he told them about yeah. his book, but if they wanted to connect with him on social media, we talked about Twitter yeah, how man. how can uh, how can the viewers find you? Sure, you can find me on Twitter, Kevin Barheit, and you can also find me on Facebook, of course, author Kevin Barheit. You can also find me on YouTube, which is um, a great place to get to know a lot of the stuff that I talked about tonight. Mm -hmm. All three of the aspects of the book, which are really the adoption, the um, the child sexual abuse, and the addiction and recovery, are all in those silos on the YouTube channel, as well as some other interviews with different people. So those are all great ways to reach out to me or just send me an email at kevinbarheight at gmail.com. Yeah. Perfect. Excellent. All right. Well, Kevin, it's, it's been a pleasure meeting you, man. Um, we're, I am, I am going to steal your number from Brett uh, once, once the feed's over and uh, I will be sending you a text um, here with my number. And I would definitely like to uh, to to chat sometime this week with you, man. Yeah, uh, let's make time for sure. Yeah, but it's man, it's it's truly been a pleasure. I'm so glad I, I'm back for this episode. Uh, I, I Kevin, you probably don't realize I was out um, almost a week and a half with with the virus, and um, it has just been an honor to be back on with Brett. And um, it has really been an honor to have you on tonight. So we want to thank you very much for coming on the Recovery Revolution live stream today. Thanks, brothers. Thanks very much for having me, and thanks, everybody, for showing up. Yeah. yeah. Thank everybody for showing up tonight. Happy birthday for those of us who had birthdays. If it's your birthday coming up, be sure to drop us a line in the chat box or the comments below, and we hope that everybody has a fantastic evening tonight. And remember, guys, progress, not perfection. That's right.